<laughs> my older brother Tim um, is uh, living in the homosexual lifestyle and has for the last 22 or 23 years. And so, obviously, this topic is very near and dear from to my heart um, as it relates to my own experience and and what we've had to deal with as a family and and all of the questions that go through your mind and all of those things. And and I have to say that even though, even though we've had a lot of experiences dealing with and directly with and, and, and dealing with the struggles that go along with this, I honestly, I didn't study it enough to be able to make a good argument back. Even for myself, who is dealing with it with a direct family member. And when you get faced with some of those questions, um, as my brother Mark can attest, when we got invited to the wedding last summer. How do you deal with that? How do you answer that without coming back as you're a bigot. You're just hating on me. These are tough questions. There is no clean-cut, let's just turn to this single Bible passage, and it's going to have all of the answers for us. It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work. And so we we have to go and we have to look at it as a whole. There is mountains of material out there. Some that's very good and a lot that's very bad. And they, made, they make no bones about trying to make this you know, palatable. And, and as of recent times, this big push to put the stamp of Christianity on homosexuality. And it's okay to be a great Christian as long as you're in a monogamous, loving relationship. How can we deny that? We're doing, as a church, we're doing them so much hurt. And that's not what God says to, in his word. It's just we're to love. And, and so we're going to look at some of those, and we're going to really get into it. Uh, before we do, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Holy God, we, we come unto you, we magnify you, we bless you, we turn this over unto you, Father, for this truly is your work, this truly is your church, this truly is your word, and we just ask that, that you would bless us, that you would, you would help us, Father, to, to learn and to, to desire that our hearts may grow and learn more and study more. We pray that your word may be upon us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I normally like to walk over there, but due to um, IT constraints... I'm going to stand, as Victor Borga says, where the opera singer bent the piano. And so, I'll, uh, this way I don't block view as much as possible either. All right, before we get going, we need to define some terms, because that's a, this is a big element that we haven't, um, we haven't really won the war on, <laughs> so to speak, because... The gay agenda is pushing and using different terms and saying, oh, these are, new, these are new terms, and therefore people in the Bible didn't understand them, and therefore, you know, this is the way. So we want to make sure, whenever we're having a conversation with somebody, that we are doing so after we've defined some key terms. Sexual orientation, what does that mean? Gender identity, what does that mean? Same-sex attraction. Does same-sex attraction, are they considered somebody that has same-sex attraction to be somebody that's homosexual. They're not always necessarily in sync with one another. Sexual immorality. Let's talk about what that is in terms of the biblical definition. Let's talk about what that means for them. And a monogamous relationship. We all come with a very clear bent from our very, our very own worldview. The question is, if they're not approaching it from the same worldview we are, that now can really affect the way that the conversation goes. I'd like to intro with, with this, because I, I believe... Uh, so this is a question and answer period. For those of you that don't like Francis Chan, I'm sorry. 
Um, I think he frames the argument in a very, very excellent way. And I want to, I want to start out with, the, with this. Um, it's a Q&A during one of his sessions, and he's asked about the, the element of homosexuality. This was shortly after he had moved to San Francisco to further his, his uh, ministry. I've heard it said of homosexuals that it doesn't matter how you were born, you need to be born again. How do you minister to those in San Francisco who are living in the homosexual lifestyle? That's good. That's good. I, I will say, man, my, my compassion, my life, my thought pattern, my love, everything has changed um, in, in that sense as far as it has really grown since I've been in San Francisco. I mean, like, like I said, the issues, the sin issues are, are so much more glaring. Um, But, you know, the way I approach that is the same way I approach a couple that's ready to divorce. One of the issues that um, the homosexual community and those who struggle with it, the reason why they, a lot of them have a problem with the church is we treat it as a sin that's so much worse than the others. And we'll excommunicate people for homosexuality, but we won't do it for divorce. And... I do it for divorce. I, I, it's a terrible sin in the sight of God. Um, when you're cheating on your wife or you're, you know, you're going to leave her for some ungodly reason, an unbiblical reason, man, we pursue it. We, we fight against it. But I also, it's kind of like what I said about singleness. Um, this isn't really about sexuality as much as it is about surrender to the kingdom and of being a person who's about the kingdom that says, look, if I'm single the rest of my life, that's not the biggest thing in my life. My, it's not my sexuality or my desires, my sexual urges that define who I am. I find my identity in, are you kidding me? Like I speak to God? Are you kidding me? Like, like I can actually be his servant and, and, and I can do what he calls me to do and I, I can, man, I'm going to be with him forever. Like where's that identity found in um, it's, it's no different from a... I'm careful how I word this stuff, but... I guess to me, a lot of these sin issues are secondary. The bottom line is, let's just start here. What, what I say to people, what, whatever issue you're dealing with today, is are you willing to surrender to God no matter what He says? What if he said in this book, Chinese people have to stand on their heads? I mean, that's just an example. Like, I'll try to stand on my head. I mean, I'll, I'll just, he's God. I'm, uh, I, you know, what if he said Chinese people don't get to marry? He's God. I don't like that. But I'm going to surrender to that because I understand the difference between a creator and a created being. Like, so, so whatever. And, and before we even get to what does this book actually say, I have to say, do you just surrender? Would you surrender? I mean, if you disagree with God on an issue, would you still submit to him? I really believe that's the core issue here. And then to say, you know, if so, which that's the type of person I want to be also, then let's look at this book together. Because a lot of what following Jesus is about deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me. A lot of this is about beating your body and making it your slave. It's about doing the, not doing some of the things you very much want to do. That's just a, a major part of what it means to follow Jesus. And so it's not even the, I don't even think that's the core issue. That's not the first thing I talk about. You know, if two guys come in holding hands or whatever, that's not the first thing I'm going to address. Um, I, I really think we, we jump to that too quickly rather than saying, okay, at the core of your being, do you believe in a creator? Um, and if he is your creator, would you surrender to whatever he asked you to do? 
And if so, then, you know, you, maybe, maybe I'm wrong on some of this. I mean, I'm a human being. I'm going to be off on things. Let's study this book together. Let me teach you how to study the book. And then you tell me, what does it say? Um, but I, I just think we've done a very poor job as a, as a church with a lot of sin issues. Um, I personally, from my best understanding of Scripture, of this book, I go, man, it, it appears to be a sin to me. Um, but if you study it and your natural conclusion or your best conclusion is that it is not, and help me understand that. I want to see that, but I want to see it from Scripture and not from reasoning, because we're all going to reason. And we're all, we, a lot of times we fight for the things we want. I fight for some of the things I want and not necessarily the things that are true. Um, it's, just, it's just what we do. I know that was a little lengthy of a clip, but I really, I think he does an excellent job in framing it. This is not one sin greater than another. This is a sin in somebody's life, and how do we deal with it? Before we move on to the next slide, last call for all ballots. If you have any left, please send them out this way. Uh, they'd like to do the count during the forum. So, all right. So I just wanted to, I wanted to start with that because it frames and it puts the concept of, of are we submitting to God regardless what his stance is? It puts us in perspective with an eternal created, creator and we simply being the created being. And he really did an excellent job in, in, in describing that. A lot of people struggle with you know, and, and you'll even hear this, you know, I was born this way, this is the way I was. For those of, uh, um, of you that have interacted, um, and I know there's quite a few teachers in, in, and there's a lot, quite a few people who have experienced, you know, you see a child from a young age and you think, this kid has that potential to go to, to the way of homosexuality. And, and so the question is, is it science? Yes. So does science support the idea of it being born in? Is there anything within that concept? So what is, what is the science? Because, you know, a lot of people will, will refer back to that. Let's, let's look at it. What does it say about homosexuality? What does it say about uh, monogamous homosexual relationships versus heterosexual marriages? What does it say nature versus nurture? All right. I am not going to be reading off these slides in this manner. There is a ton of content. I put it in here on the PowerPoint slides so that if anybody wasn't able to be here, the content is still there and they can read their way through it. I'm not going to do death by PowerPoint to you. Sorry, it's just not going to happen. Um, between 2 and 11% of all people in the United States admit on surveys to have at some point or another a same-sex attraction. Doesn't necessarily mean that you're gay. That's just what, what is some of the stats that have come out. Um, specifically, um, what specifically causes someone to be gay is not known. Every study that we have is inconclusive. Um, is it genetic? The question you have to ask yourself is, why is it over 93% of every um, child or every twin born into a homosexual relationship comes out straight? Doesn't make any sense if it's genetic. The, um, Again, I'm, I'm kind of pulling off a, 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 just a very high-level element here. Um, mortality rates amongst homosexuals. Now, this is, this is a, an area that is often not discussed, um, and it's not part of the you know, gay agenda to, to put this information forward. In 2014, a study came out uh, in Vancouver that the average, and it verified, as this is, again, just followed up very similar stats throughout all the previous studies. In Vancouver, if you are a 20-year-old gay male, 
you can expect your lifespan to be between 8 and 20 years shorter than your heterosexual male counterpart. The lifespan across America for homosexual males is that of the same lifespan from 1871. You ask yourself, why? They have no explanation for why. Obviously, there are some components of it, but we'll, we'll kind of build on that a little bit here. Um, there's a, a gay research couple, a psychologist and a psychiatrist, two gay men, who took about to study the elements of, of long-term relationships within the homosexual realm. And they were able to pull together 156 gay male couples that were together in a monogamous way from one year to about 37 years in length. And of that entire cohort, only seven, seven of the, of the couples of that 156 did not have an element of openness sexually in their marriage. So that's less than 5% of the of the, that, that study. I apologize. I don't see too many young children that would be completely offended here. I'm going to speak in very frank terms because that's what needs to be done here. Um, that would be paramount to over 85% of heterosexual couples being swingers, those that have an open marriage. That's the, that's the, the cold hard stats. Um, it's just a very pervasive element and it's something that is not talked about in society. We hear about, you know, and that's, the, that's one of the big pushes, one of the big arguments within having Christians accept homosexuality. Well, it, you know, you're denying a loving, monogamous relationship. We can, we can have the same fulfillment in marriage that you can as heterosexuals, but the reality is it just doesn't happen. That's what the statistics bore out. CDC. Now, here's some interesting stats. Um, one in six, one in six um, gay and bisexual men would be diagnosed with HIV in their lifespan. If you're a black gay male, one in, one in two, that's 50% of gay black men will be diagnosed with HIV. If you're Hispanic, it's one in four. If you're white, it's one in 11 the numbers are astronomical. Um, gay and bisexual men account for 83% of all new HIV cases in the United States, of men. And a total of 67%, so two-thirds, two-thirds of every HIV case in the United States is homosexual men. Nobody wants to talk about that statistic. Nobody wants to, to share those things uh, amongst the gay agenda. Um, gay and bisexual men um, accounted for an estimated 92%. Um, so this is the, the young age range, age range, 13 to 24. Um, 92% of all new HIV cases are, are coming out of that age group. 20, or they're basically 27, almost two, or almost one-third of the population of new HIV stats are coming out of 13 to 24-year-old gay men. It's ridiculous. The, the numbers are mind-blowing. There's a slide that'll, that'll blow your mind. If you note, so top in the red are those of the, uh, uh, in, in the homosexual lifestyle, and in the blue are not. If you notice, White heterosexual men aren't even on the list because they were below 1,000 in, in terms of rate of, of HIV diagnosis. So uh, the, the numbers are staggering when you look at, at what, you're, what you're seeing coming out of it. These are 2014 stats. These are nothing, you know, it's not 2017, but it's, I mean, I'm sure those in the medical community would attest that this is even probably higher today. Nature versus nurture. In 1993, big study came out. They found the gay gene. 
and it's you know in this part of the of the X chromosome. And so what happened? Everybody came up. Media headlines were all over, all over this. Now all we have to do is use a little bit of logic to start working our way back here. So genes can't always control behavior. What genes do in some cases, they define a tendency to develop something. So just like you can be predisposed to diabetes, you can be predisposed to heart disease, you can be predisposed to be an alcoholic through genetic components. Does it mean it makes you that? Absolutely not. And, and interestingly, um, fascinating study, they, they did a study with lab mice where they predisposed them to heart disease, diabetes, uh, cancer, and I'm trying to think of the last one, uh, obesity. And they went through all of this, and then they, so they bred them to, the, to this point. So they had all of the major issues. And they, once they had those, the, the babies of those, they fed them nothing but an organic diet that they would eat out in the wild. And the third generation was born with no predisposition genetically whatsoever. They actually came out, so lab mice are typically white, you know, albino, you know, they've got all these different components. They came out as if they were regular field mice, gray, black, different color, totally different coloring of the parents, everything was different. The entire genetic makeup and code was different from the, great, from the grandparents, simply by change of diet. So the idea of, you know, we found the gay gene is a, is a kind of a humorous component. If somebody makes this argument to you, the first question you have to ask yourself is, are, do you believe in evolution? Because if, if they do, this is the easiest argument to defeat. Survival of the fittest. You can't reproduce in a homosexual relationship. Because you can't reproduce in a homosexual relationship, you're not going to pass on those genes. See how that works? We just use logic. It's not really hard. All right. Are they born that way? No. It's not a matter of purely being born that way. What we do find is we do find people who are born with certain tendencies. They may be more effeminate. Some people are tall, some people are skinny, some people have a big frame, some people have a little frame. That's the beauty of God's creation. Some people are more naturally artistic. And as Brother Steve will attest, in the arts world, this element is extremely prevalent. I don't know if how, how many of you have been you know, exposed as, as Brother Steve has, but I was, I was actually sharing with him the other day, I was at a um, I was actually up at my Aunt Margaret's house, um, and we had come up. I was with. I used to sing in the University Chamber Choir, and we had come up for a big present, big uh, concert up in Toronto, and we practiced. There was twelve uh, chamber choirs from all across Canada, and we practiced in a gay united church. And I mean, if you've ever felt like a minority. That's what I felt. There was only a few of us um, in, our, in our choir of the men that were, that were of the heterosexual orientation. And uh, it was the only time, I will confess, that we actually went to the bathroom in pairs. I know men don't normally do that. That's a woman thing. But, but uh, you know, we were definitely watching each other's back. Um, it is what it is. Um, so natural selection eliminates the whole idea of nature versus nurture. There is a combination of things, and we know for a fact that there are some things that people are predisposed to, and there are some things that you can choose to act out on or you can choose not to act out on. You can be predisposed to, to being you know, very prolific. Um, as you guys know, we've adopted four children. The mother has seven kids. We have four of the seven. She's not even 30 yet. Some people naturally are predisposed to, to doing things, whether you're 
heterosexual or homosexual. It doesn't make any difference. The sin is still the sin. It's still sexual immorality. Majority of scientific studies conclude that it's a combination of both nature and nurture. And that's what science bears out. Um, if it's purely nature, why can people switch their sexual preference? And why is it that, and particularly among females, that the, the, um, the orientation is very fluid? And they, they, they have found statistically that females have a more fluid gender preference. And it, they can go back and forth and just it is what it is. All right. Now that we've covered the scientific side, let's talk about some of the cultural constructs and the worldviews that we use. This is a little bit of sociology, so I'm sorry to bore you with this, but it helps to frame so you can understand and we can actually put, put a logical argument together. There are three different types of, of cultures um, that we would have. A theonomous culture, or God law, God-given law, um, and this is where we look at Romans, where it talks about that God has written it on you know the law on their hearts. This is what we where we have that concept of of natural law, inalienable rights. This is what your the founders of the United States had was you know every man is born free. Why? Because this is a God given right. This isn't given by any government. This is a God given right. These things are self evident as as the the Constitution reads. Then you have heteronymous, so other, hetero meaning other, heterosexual, other sexual versus homo being singular, sexual. See how that works. Heterosexual, other law. So this is where these are examples where you'd have dictatorships. This is like current day Iran. You have the 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 imams and all of the the leaders telling the the lower classes and everybody else, this is how you have to do it, right down to the how you wash your feet, how you do your prayers five times a day, all of that. All of that comes in in, in this type of a culture. And autonomous, now, or autonomous, sorry, auto, autonomous. Uh, so this is driven by self, right? Everybody is equal, everybody's decision is equal. This is what school systems today try to push, Right? Everybody's view is perfectly equal. This really doesn't work, though, does it? Is this good in theory? Yeah, it's great in theory. Does it work in, real, in, in reality? No, it doesn't. And we'll, we'll look at that a little bit further. So when we go to the biblical perspective, Romans 2, verses 20, 14 to 15, talks about the Gentiles, which have the law, by nature do the things that are contained in the law. These not having the law are a law unto themselves, which shew the work of God of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing them witness. This is an easy one to prove that, that we are actually a theonomous culture. Is all you have to ask is show me, show me a culture on this earth that doesn't hold murder as a problem. Almost every single culture that we know of on this earth today holds that murder, rape, all of these, these core things that we as human beings that are, that are born into us, that are written on our hearts, we know that that natural law is there. So nature itself speaks about this aspect. So in Genesis chapter 2, it talks about the, the way in which God makes creation. And he says, created male and female, right? He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. When did God say this? Is this before the fall? Yes, of course it is. Every argument you're going to hear from the homosexual side is, well, you see, that was an incomplete understanding. Because they didn't have loving, committed, homosexual relationships back then. They didn't understand what that, that that could be possible. Really? Because Genesis 2 is before the fall. This is before sin even entered into the world. This is God. If God wanted to, God could have made Adam and Eve and Adam and Steve. And it could have been perfectly fine. But he didn't. He made them 
in a perfect union as a help meet one for another. Other argument you'll hear, Jesus didn't speak anything about gays, therefore it's okay. But wait a minute. He reiterates almost word for word in Mark chapter 10. The creation, he establishes the creation element and the order of creation. He talks about how nature itself spills it out. And then he he goes on to say, for this cause, again, shall a man leave his mother and father and cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. They'll no longer be two, but they'll be one flesh. And so this this is God speaking it, both Old Testament and New Testament. If Jesus was the creator in the first place, because he's God, wouldn't he know? And, and if he wanted a homosexual relationship to be accepted, why wouldn't he just say it right here? He had the opportunity to set the mark right, but he didn't. Then we look at the evil exchange that we're going to go into. Malachi talks about exchanging evil for good and, and saying what is, what is good is evil, what is evil is good. Don't we hear that all the time? In, in the, any time you hear the, the gay agenda being pushed, the church is bad, the church is bad, the church is evil, it's mean, it's mean-spirited, it's hateful. But look at us, we're loving and inclusive. We, want, we just want to be accepted. We just want to love and be loved. Why are you trying to take that away from us? We hear this all the time. Romans 1, 25 to 27 talks about that, that ungodly exchange, that exchange of good for evil. They exchanged what was natural for that which is unnatural. Okay, And so we're, we're gonna, we're, so we see that, that same word picture being drawn throughout. I would commend, highly commend this, this book to everybody, Making Gay Okay. Um, Christian book, and it's... What it does, it actually goes through and it talks about not just the, the biblical arguments, but what it does, it actually goes through how we actually got to this point. How in 1973 there were landmark legal decisions that forced the American Psychological Association to change the definitions. And then in turn, in 1975, they changed their status of homosexuality being from a mental disorder to now it's being acceptable. And by the end of 1975, they were fully endorsing the homosexual lifestyle. We've never seen a change in cultural shift so fast than with this agenda. And so I highly recommend it. He talks a lot about the culture itself, the culture of homosexuality, same sex. Um, And he talks about that that idea of the nature itself and the, the immutable benefits to society of having a a homosexual or a heterosexual versus a homosexual lifestyle. Um, the homosexual course moved naturally um, from a plea from tolerance to the idea of we're, gonna, we're going to conquer and we want to be accepted. We want you to, to celebrate us as much as we celebrate us. How many people in, in their cities, just a quick raise of hands, how many people have um, a gay pride component or some, some element. It's unbelievable to see how much that agenda has been pushed. In fact, it's kind of interesting, at least in Canada, homosexuals have a whole month of celebration, and we don't even have one day for the native peoples who founded the country initially. They actually tell you straight out what they're doing. It's gay pride. It's not, even about, it's not even about anything other than pride. So, here's, here's the, the reason that we went through the sociological side and those three different types of, of cultures. When somebody comes to you and says, I just, we're, you can have your opinion, I can have mine, and Nick, if you're against homosexuality, that's okay. And then you start talking about homosexuality, and you start condemning it, and the very first thing I do is I go over, you can't say that. Why can't you say it? I can't say, you can't say that? No, you can't say that. That's being bigoted, it's being homophobic, that's all of these, that's hate speech, and then we're going to put all these things in place. Is that, is that autonomous culture? 
No. No, it's not. It's heteronous. Because the few, the 3%, are telling all of us what we can and cannot do, what we can and cannot say. Right? It never is an autonomous culture. So before you begin any discussion with anybody in regards to the homosexual, homosexual agenda, you have to ask yourself that question and ask them. Before we begin this discussion, I just need to know. You want everybody to be tolerant of everybody else's decisions. Yes? Yes, of course I do. Great. So when I express a different opinion than you, are you going to be tolerant of what I'm going to say? Because if you're not, we're not going to carry on this discussion. It's up to you. How, are you going to accept me the same way that I'm supposed to accept you? It will save you from burning out a lot of conversations very long for no reason. It only works in theory. Ultimately, they will switch. Once you make your statement, they will switch from autonomous over to heteronomous. All right. So, the next argument you'll often hear is, how can you stop me from loving someone? You're going to hear all kinds of discussions about, but it can't be wrong because we love each other. We're not hurting anybody. We just love each other. All right. Well, in, in our culture, we have to look at an element of that. But let's go back to the Bible. The Bible uses four different words for love in the Greek. Agape, being godly love. Philio, which is friendship love. Storge, which is French uh, family and parental love. And eros, which is your romantic love. Marriage between one man and one woman, as God defined it, is the only relationship that all four of those exist. Okay? They can, you, you have to have all four of those. Why, why can't a homosexual relationship have all four of those as well? Because you can't have parental love. Because they can't reproduce. Because God defined marriage, and therefore you can't have agape love. So all you're left with is friendship love and sexual love, romantic love. If that's all you're left with, both of those will be perverted. And we see that in the, in the type of relationships. We see that in, in, in their element of, of the promiscuity that goes along with, with that, that whole realm. You can see it. You, they break the covenant because of it. So the sacred order of God. God designed one man and one woman in the relationship. It's a perfect design in a perfect world in a perfect setting. God's design for marriage came before the fall and was not hindered or by incomplete knowledge or understanding of, the relation, of, 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 of a relationship. God ordained marriage as one man and one woman and therefore established the sacred nature of marriage. If marriage is sacred, by extension... So is sexuality. When you stray away from the original design and plan for marriage, you remove the agape love from the relationship and, and the rest of it falls apart. Hebrews 13.4 talks about the marriage bed is undefiled. It talks about the fact that in the confines of marriage, sexuality is a beautiful thing. Anything outside of that, whether you have, you know, we're going to talk more in the afternoon session about um, and we're going to break down all the different biblical arguments and, and really d- drill into the, to the actual scriptures. But Leviticus is the one that they always talk about. Oh, you know, it, it, yes, it, but it doesn't apply to us because that was the Levitical law, and that's the Old Testament, and we're not bound by the law because Christ came and fulfilled the law. Yeah, but he did. But we still have adultery. We still have fornication. We still have sexual immorality. We still see prohibitions against incest. We still see prohibitions against bestiality. Those are all listed right there in Leviticus. So why is it we're going to just pick this one verse and this one thing to apply to that doesn't apply anymore? It all applies. God fulfilled the ritual law. Yes, yes, he did. That's why we don't need feasts anymore. That's why we don't get together on the Sabbath. That's why we don't, we're not Seventh-day Adventists. That's why we go through all of these things. Because God fulfilled that part of the law. The sacredness of creation. Slavery is, is, is often a cultural 
explanation that they will use. You know, look at the church was for slavery for hundreds of years, they'll say. Now, is that true history? Was the church for slavery, pro-slavery? No, it wasn't. In fact, you can go back to the second century and you can see from the second century on, every, every century that we have, you see, you see people, leaders of the church, going back to the scripture to talk about why slavery is wrong. So, actually, I heard a black pastor say it the best. He said, listen, don't equate my skin color with your sin color. And I like that. It was, it was one of those things you realize, wait a minute, one, is, one truly is born in. We've already gone through the science. One is not born in. You can't, unless you're you know, bleaching your skin, you can't change the color of your skin. It is what it is. It's what you were born with. That is a, that is a God-given thing. And it's very obvious. Obviously, race is, not sac- race is a sacred element of creation. You can't change that. But sexual preference is not a sacred element. The church itself, and the Bible historically speaks against slavery, and almost 100% of abolitionists were Christians. So we can see that that doesn't, again, hold up as an argument. Christ's fulfillment of the law. We've already covered kind of some of this. Um, the laws are a foreshadowing to Christ and therefore didn't apply after Christ. Those are the ones that went away. The ones that talked about Christ being the salvation. Beyond that, all of the other laws still apply. You're still to honor your father and mother. You're still, all the Ten Commandments apply. There's not one of the Ten Commandments we can say, oh, Christ fulfilled that. We don't need to follow that. I can go and cheat my neighbor now. No. We have to. We have to abide by the law still. Apostle Paul talks about the law, how it was, it was a schoolmaster brought me to the knowledge of Christ, brought me to the cross that I may know my Lord. Here's some of the, the main stances. And so you'll find, if you do the study, and I would highly recommend, you're going to be involved in this. You're going, the more you can have knowledge of this, the better that you can do. In the back of, at the end of the PowerPoint slides that I have, are all of the references that I've used and all of the things I've studied. Um, save for a few that I didn't think were very beneficial. <laughs> um, and so I, I've, what I've done is I've, I've put them all in there so that you can actually go and do the study yourself if you want. Um, I would highly recommend it. it. It will make you understand this, this a whole lot better. I can only touch on very brief elements here. So Matthew Vines is the latest one. You'll hear him come out um, talking about, and so he wrote a book called uh, God and the Gay Christian. He's a Harvard student, so he's very eloquent. He, he's, he's a good speaker. He puts together what sounds like a really nice argument. Um, and so this, these are the, kind of the main points of, of what he's done. Um, Christians change their stance on slavery um, as a culture changed. So with our new experiences, we should be, you know, we should do the same thing. We shouldn't be worried about changing our stance today about homosexuality. It shouldn't be a problem. We should just fully accept it. Past Christians disapproved only of certain homosexual acts and not homosexual orientation. Remember the first slide we talked about defining terms. They will twist their, these terms. So it's just the act that's wrong. And then, then they'll, they'll, they actually take it a step further and they go, well, it's not even just the act. It's, it's the way in which the act is done. So... The, 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 uh, the problem with Sodom and Gomorrah is because it was about gang rape, homosexual gang rape. So therefore, that's what's wrong. Well, you know, or it's because it was, it was done in idolatry, and that's why it was wrong. So you'll hear a lot of these arguments coming up, and they, just, they, they filter in different ways. They're essentially all the same, same arguments. You just have to know your scripture well. Uh, Christians have never made a solid case against homosexual practice based on an anatomical complementarianism. So because men and women are complementary anatomically and their parts go together nicely as opposed to homosexual orientation where they're just not congruous, um, you know, that's, that, that seems to be, you know, we haven't made a good enough stance on that. That's, 
you know, one of the reasons that they'll make that argument. Then they'll make the argument, because the, the other side of the, the coin that has been made is, listen, if you have those desires, be celibate. Be a Christian. Be chaste. And, and focus on serving the word of God and serving God in a, in a chaste way. Well, that's, that's just a gift given to some. That's what Apostle Paul talks. You know, I, w- I wish that you were all like me, but because some, you, know, you all can't be like me, he had the gift of celibacy, as they like to say. Therefore, you know, it can't be wrong. All right. So homosexual orientation is new. It's argued that, that in the biblical era, the writers did not address loving monogamous relationships because they had no understanding of them. The funny thing with that is in 300 BC, um, Aristophanes wrote an entire play about multiple gay couples who lived their lives together. The Greek, the Greek and Roman culture was replete with homosexuality. They're on the wrong side of history. They're just, they don't know their history, and they're, they're counting on you not knowing your history. Do your study. Learn your history. Because history itself depicts what was out there. Then they'll, they'll argue, there's only six verses in the Bible that speaks directly about homosexuality and the prohibition of homosexual acts. So, you know, it can't be that wrong. Look at all the, look at all the times he talks about, you know, you know, being mean to your neighbor and all of these other things. Those are more important. So again, they're, they're trying to play that emphasis of, of Scripture. Maybe it's because back in the biblical era, you didn't need to explain that homosexuality was wrong and a sin. Sometimes it's what goes without being said. Biblical references are argued to be in reference to homosexual acts done in, in idol worship or not, and not done in monogamous relationships. Jesus himself didn't talk about homosexuality, so therefore, because it's what he didn't say, that that's why it's okay. Kind of a really bad legal argument, but who am I to speak? Homosexual relations don't hurt anyone. So this is, you know, this is the, but I'm not hurting anybody, I'm just loving. Why is this a problem? Right? Proponents suggest the New Testament reference to homosexuality, you're talking about pedastry or pederasty, um, which, is, is, which was a very common practice of taking young male boys, castrating them and putting, making them eunuchs, and having them as sex slaves, basically, for the, the higher-ups. That was very common in Greek and Roman culture of the day. And so that's what they're talking about, because it was often associated with idol worship. So that, that's, that's the big argument here. Homosexuals... Uh, homosexual believers uh, have been hurt by Christians through history, contrary to Matthew 7. You'll hear this often. The Sermon on Mount, they'll reference Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, because you know, a good, fr- good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. And because homosexuals have been so hurt by the church, you know, it's the bad fruit that the church is bearing out. Kind of a really twisted way to look at that scripture. All right. And with that, let's just, here's the, the we're ending, ending with this. This, um, again, a, a book that I'm going to commend to you is, is called Messy Grace. And it's written by a, by a, a pastor out in uh, California who was born and raised by a homosexual couple. His, when he was very young, his parents separated his mother became, became a lesbian and his father became a gay man. So he was born and raised walking in gay pride parades and having you know, all kinds of hatred and vitriol thrown at him by Christians. And so when he was 16 years old, he wanted to uh, prove those Christians wrong. So he went to a Bible study in high school and, and turned around and became a Christian. And those tolerant lesbian parents of his, when he went home and told them that, they kicked him out of the house. Sounds like something a heterosexual couple would do if their, their child comes out. He went back in, and it became a problem. So this is him sharing a little bit, and he, he, he's got a number of examples. It's very brief. I think you'll enjoy it.
I wanted people to tell me that I'm something, that I'm significant, that I'm somebody. And women, I think, uh, became one of the main sources of that for me. I was beginning to form a, a deep attachment to guys rather than to girls. She went into the pain of dysphoria of her gender. My brother, now my sister, is really suffering. And I did not know that and I did not have clues. I thought that because of my actions that I was too far gone. I was the hypocrite of hypocrites. So that's his book, Messy Grace. Christians who would consider themselves conservative of some nature or evangelical need to learn to think deeper when it comes to the LGBT community and people who identify as LGBT. Now notice, I didn't say different, because I don't think that we should change our perspective on what God says about intimacy. Intimacy is between a man and a woman in the context of marriage, and anything outside of that is not his design, it's sin. But we need to learn to think deeper about people, because nobody is shallow. Everybody is complex, everybody has a story, everybody is deep. And so we have to think about people from a different perspective. I remember a conversation that I had with my mom one time, and she told me, you know, the last several years of my relationship with Vera, we weren't sexually intimate. My mom wasn't a Christian yet, but I looked at her and I said, well, if you're not sexually intimate, that means you're not a lesbian anymore. And she said, well, sure I am. Those are my people. I'm part of a cause and a movement. I have relationships. I have acceptance. I have grace and forgiveness. And I said, you just described the church. And she said, no, I didn't. Why in the world would I go somewhere where people would shame me and think less of me? And it really dawned on me in that moment that people like my mom, or not everybody who identifies as LGBT, but a large majority of people would say that how they identify as LGBT is many things, but the smallest of which is who they want to have sex with. And yet, for Christians, that is the biggest thing that we usually go after, right? I mean, to be called a pedophile or to see the print on a daily basis, you know, to be called a sexual deviant on a daily basis, openly, you know, it wears on you. We can live without sex. We can't live without intimacy. But in our culture, those two things have become the same. And we, culturally, we can't think of intimacy without thinking of sexual intimacy. God designed us to be defined Him for Himself and to His glory. So don't ever choose to think that someone's shallow. Do the hard work. Be like Jesus. What is their name? Who are they? What do they like to do? What do they enjoy? Who are their family? Where were they raised? How about we start getting to just know people for who they are instead of pursuing them for what they do? Thank you very much. I know it wasn't, we, it was a heavy topic, and I know we have a lot more to cover in the second half um, in terms of the scripture and really digging into the details. Please come back at two, um, not here, to Martin Seminary. Um, do your homework and, and ultimately love them because they're sinners just like everybody else. Thank you.